Hello. Welcome to our very first episode of Prog Notes. Welcome to Prog Notes. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Prog Notes. Welcome to episode five of Prog Notes. Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of Prog Notes. 25. 35 of Prog Notes. Hello, and welcome to episode 40. Welcome to episode 41. Hello, and welcome to episode 42. 44. 46. 48. Hello, welcome to episode 49. Fifty episodes of Prognotes. How incredible is that? But before we jump into it, I just have to give a big thank you to you, our listeners. With over eighty thousand listens in thirty-seven different countries, it's been quite the ride. The prog rock community is just absolutely amazing. So thank you for supporting Drew and I in this endeavor. Maybe we can do fifty more. But until then, here is Revolver by the Beatles. Hello, everybody, and welcome to, like I said a minute ago, episode 50 of Prognotes. My name is Destin. And I'm Drew. And we are listening to Revolver by the Beatles. If this is your first time listening to our show, welcome. We like to talk about progressive rock music, a fun, exciting, unique subgenre of rock music. And each episode, we dedicate our time to break down and talk about albums from all over the world. And if you aren't familiar with us, or maybe you just haven't checked this out extensively, we also have a bunch of other fun things going on, like our offshoot podcast called Spotlight. We also have a Patreon, Discord community, all of these things. If you'd like to support us, you can listen to those episodes or support us monthly at linktree.com slash prognotes. And lastly, we always want to say thank you to all of our patrons for helping us keep Prog Rock alive and sharing these albums that we all love and enjoy. I want to give a special shout out here to Christopher Green for being our longest standing patron over the course of the 50 episodes. You were awesome, man. Big shout out to you. Be sure to stick around until the end of the episode to know which album we will be listening to next. So Revolver is the seventh studio album by the English rock band The Beatles. It was released on August 5th, 1966. The album contains 14 songs, but only runs about 35 minutes of music. Of course, the members of the group are Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. So when someone says prog rock, the Beatles aren't normally a band that comes to mind, it seems. Drew and I have both been one to suggest that the Beatles were essential to the rise of progressive rock music in the mid-60s and onward. And so I'm really excited to talk about this today. Also, we discussed this a bit way back on episode four of Prog Notes, which we covered Sgt. Pepper's, if you're interested in that. So, Drew, welcome to 50 episodes of Prog Notes. How you doing? hey oh hey oh We yeah. did it, man. We, we did, did it. it. Here we, we are. We did it, man. We, we did, did it, man. We are here. We, we did, did it. it together. There's nothing stopping us now. Mm. I feel like there's a, it's like we just opened up a new gate. I don't know. Where do we go from here? This is a new era. So, Gen 2. 
Gen 2? I don't know. This is, we're past Gen 2. We're past Gen 2. I feel like we've been doing a seasonal thing, and it's been like season <laughs> yeah. 1 was a year, yeah. and then season 2 was a year. I mean, we've been doing this for four years now. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's I was pretty thinking about, nutty. I, I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, I have recorded Prognotes episodes at four different addresses. That's crazy. Isn't that nuts? I've yeah. moved four times in the midst of... Yeah. All of in the midst of this show being around, I am recording our first. Uh, this is the first time I'm recording an episode in my house, my new house that I'm sitting in right now. That's crazy. crazy. Yeah. And it just happens to be episode 50. So this is a pretty good. This is a good day. Yeah. And I've been intoxicated 50 times while on this show. I'm, you know, <laughs> and no one has ever really noticed. No one's ever noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been completely just hammered every time. It's amazing. Um, did you also get how many did it? Did you get annoyed by that little intro? How many times I just kept saying episode and episode, you know, numbers. I, it was okay. You 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 had whittled yeah. it down after yeah. after you. Yeah, you sent me a rough draft. <laughs> I was I was like, all right, like, this is long. I get man. it. I get we've done fifty. Long. Like we've that's done 50. great. But you, no, you, you whittled it down. It keeps it's, climbing. It, that was a good number. I, it I was think. fun. I was actually able to go back and listen to like all of those episodes and grab the intros of them and listen to uh, literally just the intros, like how we sounded and how our episodes sounded like crap back in the day. Uh, so, well, yeah, there were some issues. Um, there were some issues, but people stuck around. So that's really they, great. Some of them did. Yeah. Some of them we did. Have, <laughs> I guess we they're here now. It's really – so now we're here. We, we, have, we have progressed. Yeah, stop. <laughs> well um we're talking about revolver today by the beatles that's uh, correct dustin yeah we're talking about revolver so let's just jump straight into it uh because i know we've pe some people legitimately and i know this is a legitimate deal uh, other people mm -hmm. who've maybe have been around for the show for a while understand and know that we've we've made our plea for the reason why we included the yeah. beatles on this on this yeah. show a progressive rock show but for some yeah. i know that uh, people don't, like I said a minute ago, don't really necessarily think of the Beatles when somebody says prog rock. So uh, I, I'd love for us to kind of maybe go back. This is the this is the earliest album I think we've ever done on the show. Yeah, we've never 100%. done it. We've never yeah. done anything earlier than 1966. No. So this is this is the no. earliest album that we've done on the show, uh, yeah. which I'm really excited about. But I just would love for you to kind of help us out with the landscape of where are we? It's 1966. Uh, the Beatles height of their career essentially and maybe not the height of their career but their career is still booming yeah um and uh, they had a, a record that came out just before this called rubber soul and uh so but something changed after rubber soul would you mind just speaking into a little bit about uh the focus shift of the beatles after rubber soul and uh before getting ready to record this record uh sure yeah so um you know, you, you have the Beatles that are still, and we mentioned this, you know, a little bit on Sgt. Pepper, so some of this will be a repeat, but um, they, they, they were a boy band, and they were incredibly successful at that, obviously. Like, like you said, height of their career, they're huge. In fact, just a couple months earlier in March, right, this is released in August, in March, um, John had made the, the quite controversial remark that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Um, and they were still dealing with the fallout of that actually yeah, um, yeah. at People this point while they're recording upset. this, uh, really upset about that comment or whatever. But his whole point was we're like, we can't go anywhere without being mauled by fans, like, especially in the U S I mean, in the UK too, but like, you know, they, they were just 
everyone knew them. They were a household name at this point. And they had ridden that wave for a while and they were just getting to a point and as, as the world was too, the world was evolving and progressing and kind of, you know, experimenting with, you know, counterculture and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the sixties were an incredibly um, vibrant and exciting time, but also a very dangerous one. Um, in, yeah. Um, I, I guess I would say tumultuous, just, just really, really um, unpredictable. What was going to happen? There was there was a lot of political and global, you know, a lot of geopolitics at play there, right? With the Cold War at its height, you know, you've got the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, in in America and and Britain, they they were experimenting with a lot of different um, drugs ideologies. Well, drugs, yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's no, one absolutely. Of one of them, yeah. Um, but uh, with with a lot of different ideologies, and a lot of the times that came with drugs too, uh, to kind of open your mind or expand your mind and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, before this with rubber soul, um, the Beatles were starting to step out in rubber soul and you see progression, um, to a small degree, uh, with stuff like Norwegian wood, when you have the sitar influence, uh, or, yeah. or incorporation of that, in, uh, you know, Indian instrument from George Harrison, he was, he was the one who was really, really, um, inspired by a lot of Indian music out of the Beatles. I think all of them were to a degree. They all visited India at one point. That would be later on in their career. But they, they liked it. They were fascinated by some of that too. But George is really the one who kind of gravitated the most towards that. So you've got Norwegian wood on Rubber Soul and you've got stuff um, where they're kind of experimenting with sounds. Um, we can get into this later, but on, you know, Nowhere Man, right? Yeah. That was kind of a sing-songy, still kind of popish, but, yeah. you know, the the sound of the guitar in that. It had some different right? that, sounds that were Absolutely. The um, that was a really high treble sound that they hadn't experienced with, uh, experimented with before. You got stuff like that, and you've got more profound, thought-provoking lyrics with stuff like "In My Life," written by John Lennon, on Rubber Soul. Um, and they they were playing these songs, right? They they had hundreds and hundreds of shows. They were doing this night after night after night, and they've been doing this for a couple of years now. Um, you know, to us that might not seem like that long, like just like a couple of years, but they were constantly playing. They were constantly on television. They were constantly under this pressure, and they were like, "We're not even getting time to like craft this." I'm like, "We're we're just burnt out with this whole idea that." I don't know, we have to keep playing the same songs over and over and over. We really enjoy this new stuff that's coming along in, in a lot of the culture and a lot of, yeah, you know, that, that we're seeing in the world. Um, yep. Different influences that, that, that they're getting from drugs, like I said. And so they, they really wanted to, to progress music. And that's why I think they're, that's why you and I are arguing that they should be on prog notes is that they really progressed this music. <sighs> to a degree that other bands had not before. I mean, they, they, were they were they looking at other groups and uh, contemporaries at the time? Absolutely. They were looking at their contemporaries. They were looking at the Beach Boys. They were looking at the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds and the Kinks. I mean, th- this was these early British invasion bands yep. um, that came along in the, the early to mid-60s. The Beatles were undoubtedly the most popular of them. Undoubtedly. But lots of people liked the Rolling Stones. They liked the more rebellious, less put-together you know, look and attitude that the Rolling Stones projected. And you have stuff like, I can't give it no satisfaction in 65. And stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, some of the notable bands of that time, like I said, were the Rolling Stones, Yardbirds, the Animals, the Kinks, the Hollies. You got the Moody Blues, even. Um, and all of these groups, though, were really kind of doing uh, their own kind of twist on early rock and roll 
um, an early American uh, music, primarily from the black community. Uh, you've got a lot of R&B, you've got a lot of soul and Motown and that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. these, these British groups were really inspired by that. They loved that kind of music. So they they took those songs, a lot of times they would cover them and, and made them a little bit more, um, did their own kind of take on them. Uh, but by and large, there, there wasn't a huge progression, at least as far as instrumentation goes. They would maybe add a cool effect here and there. Um, but uh, the, the Beatles came along, and of course they did that too in their early days, especially their, their early records. A lot of their early material was covers, <laughs> just like a lot of these early British and Asian bands. Yeah. Um, but then they came along, and especially, particularly with Revolver, it was just... You know, we, we look at it now, and Dustin, I don't want to step on your toes. I think you, you might have something to say about this, but we look at it now and we're kind of like, oh, that's not that like that revolutionary. I hear music like this here and there and all over the place. But for the time, this was, you did not hear this kind of music, this kind of yeah. writing both lyrically and musically, the incorporation of different technologies. And uh, the Beatles really wanted to push the envelope to the point that they said, we do not want to be shackled down by touring anymore. We're done with that. So they actually toured with a couple of these songs. So I, I, I want people to know that. There were a couple of these songs that they did play live as they were writing them, you know, as they right. were kind of recording, that yeah. they were testing out on an audience here and there. I think Andrew Bird Can Sing might have been one of them and, and, and a couple of others. Um, and then some of them could not be replicated live. And, yeah. and that's something that's we'll true. kind of go into as well. But that's where the Beatles are. They're progressing to a point where we want to experiment more and we want to, I think the, the big key term to take away from this, and I may have mentioned this in Sgt. Peppers, is using the studio as an instrument. Yes. Where they say, we know we can't do this live because we can't bring a whole studio on stage, but that's what we want to do now. So we're done touring. Now when we are writing music, we are not being tethered by this idea of, oh, but can we replicate this live? Yep. They don't care about that at this point. They're like, look, if that's a, you know, a problem. Who, who cares? Yep. Like we're, we're not worried about playing live anymore. We want to see what we can do and really push the boundaries. Oh, come on. You got to admit this is cool. Which people do write like that. People, people, mm -hmm. I mean, it, that's kind of like two in, in the, the music recording or artists who are recording. I mean, a lot of the time people look at some of these things. Nowadays, it's so much easier because you have computers and tracks and things that can just be triggered and all of that. But like, back in the day that's just an interesting like two sides of how do we write music some people write without the intention of it ever being played live some people write with the intention of we need to make sure that it, it sounds good live or we need to make sure that we can pull this off live or do we even care about right. being able to quote unquote replicate this live does that sure. matter to us and so those kinds of schools of thought in terms of writing music uh I'm not sure if that was their original, their their actual intention early on was like, we're writing this so it can be played live. Didn't know if they cared, but this is very, quite simply, just, this is a direction that they're heading where it's like, we don't care if it's going to be played live or not. We're just going to use the studio and be as creative yeah. as we can in the studio. Yeah, and there's some stuff that they couldn't play live even on like Rubber Soul. Like in my life, that kind of harpsichord solo or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way they did that, just again, may have mentioned this on Sergeant Pepper. It's been a long time. That was our fourth episode. Yeah, it was, so you'll have to forgive ago. me for forgetting some of this stuff. Uh, but uh, that that was a, a studio trick. And they, they, they often use it actually where they would, with four track tape, slow it down and play it a, an octave lower 
at half speed, then they would speed it up so it was an octave higher and played faster. Yep. So they did that with that solo on In My Life. They actually also did that on A Hard Day's Night, that guitar solo. That whole thing, that yep. was played an octave lower. Yep. Uh, it was a studio trick that they used. So some of that stuff they couldn't really do live that well. Um, but it was like only maybe a song or two, right? And this was like yeah. this full album. It's like, we, we don't really care. Some of this might be played live, it might not. But that is not even on our radar, really, when we're putting and producing this album. It's not really on our, our, our scope, because we don't, in our scope, we just don't care. We're, we're more about the music, and that is what we're focused on. Um, and I think that that was, I mean, that's part of the reason I love the Beatles. And I think it's that spirit of kind of the whole prog rock nature where it's like, can we make this really artistic? Can we experiment with something? Um, adding a bit more color. I think that's a hall, hallmark of just progressive rock movement, especially when first starting out. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it's good. Anyways. I mean, that's, that's a, I think that's a great sum up and maybe possible argument for the reason why the Beatles are on the show and yes. on prognos and, and for what they were doing. And we'll break down more of that and go kind of more granular with some of the things that they actually did throughout this episode. Um, also to, I want to, I want to make sure that I say this, uh, for people who are fans of revolver, uh, you, you may have already have seen this or know this already, but there is a super deluxe edition of this album coming out in 13 days from this release. And so that's, just a complete coincidence. We did yeah. not plan that. No. We didn't even, I didn't even know it was coming out until after I started doing research on the record and stuff like that. And I started seeing all these people talking about a super deluxe edition of the album. And it's like several different CDs, booklets, uh, LPs, all of it. Um, the only thing that I know is not included is Blu-ray, uh, which means that it's not going to be released in 5.1. Kind of sucks. I think that would be kind of cool to hear Revolver in 5.1. But, you know, you, you get what you get. But, uh, it's coming out in 13 days, so you can check that out. You can probably find it literally anywhere. Um, okay, super, so, super quick tangent. Super quick I tangent. I wonder how this new mix is going to address Eleanor Rigby. Do you know what I'm talking about? The very first verse, it's after, you know, the the the, the song opens with the chorus. Uh -huh. Ah, look at all the lonely right. people. Right? And then you've got the very first verse, Eleanor Rigby. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of the second verse, but you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> the second verse lyrics are in my Eleanor Rigby. Um, so, do you the very first Eleanor, Eleanor that eh sound? Yeah. It's in both ears, and then it drops down to one. Do you have you noticed this when you've listened to not. this song? Next time you take not. a listen to it in headphones, it is in both ears and headphones, and you can yep. hear it in your car too. It comes out of both speakers at first, and then it goes to one side. Interesting. And that is the only time in the song it does that. That is the only time in the song it does That's that. weird, man. They always I have noticed did weird that stuff for years. like that. For years, I've noticed that. And I wonder, I, I have a feeling it's a mistake. It doesn't seem intentional, but it's been there, at least on the recording I have listened to forever, for years and years, and I've noticed this. Anyway, That's sorry, hilarious. super quick tangent. I'm really curious to see if this I new wonder. master yeah. will yeah. address that. Which is anyway. done, all, all of the remasters, and, the, and I think some of the remixes, possibly. Uh, it's not mm -hmm. Stephen Wilson. Um, shoot. <laughs> it's not Stephen Wilson. Uh, it's actually done by George Martin's son, which, uh, which we were saying his name is Giles, Giles Martin, Giles, yeah. Giles Martin, Giles Martin. Yeah. So, um, it's kind of cool that it's staying, uh, in the family, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Um, well, and that's, cool. that's something we'll have to talk about later is their producer, George Martin. And just like the Beatles would not have gotten, I mean, he was dubbed the fifth Beatle, right? Unofficially. He's brilliant. Yeah. 
um, they would not have gotten to where they they were as far as their impact on music if it weren't for him. I 100% believe that because yeah, totally. uh, he had so many great ideas that he kind of threw out there and they had so many ideas that would never have come to, that would never have been realized if it weren't for him. And, you know, I think you know, he had that spirit of innovation too. And like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Or have this can do right. attitude of you want this. All right, I'm going to try to figure this out. Whereas, I mean, there's a, there's an interview with Paul McCartney on uh, a Hulu original called McCartney three, two, one, highly recommend you check it out. If you're curious about Beatles stuff where he, he says, you know, if it, like so many other producers of the time um, in, in that kind of an industry would have been like, no, no, like, like, why are you asking if we can turn the treble extra up here? Or why are you asking if we can do this? Like, let's just, let's get the studio out and get paid or, or no, yeah. stu- the, the record out. Let's get this, the record out and let's get paid. Yep. Like, yep. we're not going to spend forever trying to figure out whatever artistic vision it is that you have. And George was like, let's try it. All right, cool. Um, yep. you know, and he's incredibly sharp. I mean, the guy is incredibly bright. Um, and he also just had this adventurous spirit, which was great. Um, yeah, I, you got to have, really but on the flip side of that, you also need the per, the person who has the vision. No, of course you, you, the you had to have the, the vision. Be- yes, absolutely. You had to have yeah. Paul and John being like, let's, what, what if we did this? And you had to have yeah. George being like, you know, uh, yeah, I want to put in like a uh, tambura here. Yep. The Indian sound is really cool. Which is, which is so uh, yeah. critical to, I mean, that's, that's progressive. That's progressive rock. Yeah. That's progressive rock. Yeah. It's like, let's try this. You yeah. know, and then somebody else being going on the other side of it, whether it's an Alan but, Parsons, whether it's a George Martin going, yeah, let's try it and, and see what yeah. we can do. Or a Brian Eno or whoever, just somebody in yeah, a studio yeah, yeah, who's yeah. going, Brian Eno. let's try it. Let's do it. Yeah, I saw a review, though. And here's what's cool it is, I mean, and obviously this is super subjective, um, but there was a review where someone had said, because you were talking, you know. The spirit of let's see if it works. And a lot of times it doesn't, right? <laughs> it's true, yeah. Right. Well, okay. I I agree with this person. It's very very subjective. But there was a review that says it's admirable that despite such bold experimentation, none of the songs backfire, but are instead among the Beatles' most original and beloved tracks. There are songs I like more than others, but there's I don't think there's a song on here that I absolutely hate. Mm. I, I you know, yeah, and no, fourteen true. songs. I mean, even Love You Too, I appreciate it for what it is. It's not the catchiest. That's that's George's very Indian and almost like really embracing Indian culture there because it sounds like a mantra, right? It's very repetitive and, yep. um, you know, it's almost like a chant, right? There's even a part in there where there's this, you know, it almost sounds like a didgeridoo that uh-huh. uh-huh. kind of going on in the background of people and their voices. But anyways, uh, like it's 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 kind of crazy with the Beatles. It just, it just kind of worked on a lot of different levels. Um, I'm a I'm a big Beatles geek, and I have nothing but mostly nothing but good things to say. about Yeah, them. see, the thing is about you is that I, you know a lot of the minutia that I just like. That's really your wheelhouse. They honestly. were well, they like, were my first like big band crush, probably. Maybe Dave Matthews was. It was it was both of those kind of at the same time. Yeah, and it was right. before even really prog rock. Before I even really got into that, but those, those, mm-hmm. you know, but then as I studied prog rock and kind of got more into it, I was just kind of like, see, some of the stuff with the Beatles, though, like there is a link here. There's yep. absolutely a link here. And I think, I really do, I think this is the pivotal album. I think there were some progressions, you know, and, and some adventurous elements in Rubber Soul. And I love Rubber Soul. Again, love the Beatles from, from their early career to the end. I'm a big fan. Um, but I think this to me, is the pivotal record in their career and in in music in in yeah. in in the progressive rock kind of music to, to me this is the record that starts it all 
And that's a bold statement. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so here, let me, let me throw this counter argument to you. This is not an argument for me, but this is a, a counter sure. argument that I found online. Some people that I've seen would suggest that Rubber Soul was the pivotal album because they find it to be the transition yeah. point between what they were doing to Revolver. They say that without Rubber Soul, there would be no Revolver. Therefore, Rubber Soul is the pivotal album of the Beatles that shot put them, or not shot put, but just slingshot them into what they were going to do in the future. What would your response be to that? Okay, so to me, Rubber Soul, yes, is is necessary for it. Yeah, but and I, I would agree you with can, that too. You can me tell me if I'm talking out of my butt with this analogy because you know this world way better than I did. What way I better do? than I do? You'll you'll see when I make the analogy. To me, <laughs> to me, yeah. Where where am I going with this? Yep. Yes, you need it. You need a good stance before you take the swing at the plate when you're playing baseball. But the swing, the motion that you're rotating your hips, the motion of the actual act of swinging has a lot of details in it in and of itself. That That is what it is. Yes, you need rubber sole. You need to take the proper stance before you swing. But revolver's the swing. The revolver is the, revolver the, is home the run. motion. It's the home run. Revolver is the action that makes it the home run, that makes the impact, that brings you to home plate. And that's not to diminish the the excellence of our result. Again, I'm a big Beatles fan. That's not to diminish the the excellent songwriting that is clearly evident on Rubber Soul. But they didn't have time to experiment really that much. Yep. There were little things here and there. Yes, of course, you could say, oh, that's kind of cool, that's cool. But it was not to the magnitude and with the frequency that Revolver was because with Revolver, they took their time. They took close to 300 hours all said and done. Not just recording. I mean, that involves mixing too. 300 hours, right? That's not as much as Sgt. Pepper's. I believe on that episode, we said there was 700 hours, a crazy amount, right? No, but contrast, uh, I think there was like all in like 80 hours on Rubber Soul. Yeah. Okay. So that's like three times the amount of, you know, studio time. Studio time. Yep. That is three times what they would normally would have done because they were allowed to. They were given free reign to do this, which is, you know, in fairness, that's kind of privilege. Not every artist had was able to kind of afford, afford that, that. Of studio yeah. time. Yeah. And, you know, it just that's not how the industry was done back then. You made your record, you got out. If it was a hit, great, awesome. Then you'll do another record, but you'll do what the record company wants you to do and expects you to do because you're marketed that way. To a degree, that's still in place today, to, to a degree. I mean, music is still a business and business is... You know, yep. Try to capitalize on profits. And the way you do that is you market something for what it is, blah, 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 blah. So they had the privilege to do that where not other bands did. Um, so, but privilege uh, and the vision. And the vision. They had the privilege and, and the vision. They were, they were privileged to have the privilege because yes. of what they did. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. To, to have yes. that, which yep. set them up. But without the vision, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been. No, totally. What, it, what yeah. the future? What the future could have hold? You know, yeah. I, I was literally just thinking of this. I was like, this is the equivalent. I'm trying to put this into like a more modern. I was thinking of like, what would be? What would that be like now? This would be like One Direction in 2014, saying we're done. Takes a three month break, goes into the studio, and produces a record. That is just wacky. Yeah. Just something well, out of maybe maybe not wacky, but just completely well, no, yes. out no, of right. left field. Wacky, but it works. Like people still like it. People you know what I mean? Like they're cause you know, you see a lot of artists that do a lot of like weird wacky stuff and you're like, okay, that was just 
that didn't really work. They were trying to do something bold yeah. and artistic yeah. and it just didn't really work. And with the Beatles, it still worked. It was not just so – okay, so let me put it this way. This is not like the, the dark stain on their career. You know what I mean? Where people are like, yeah, we kind of just gloss over this record because it wasn't very good because they were right. trying some stuff and it really kind of failed. And then their next one, it was it, it worked. But this one was just kind of a flop. No, people really enjoy this record. And, and I, I want to kind of get into some of the reviews and just some of the accolades that it racked up. Some of that, of course, was somewhat dictated by their their previous success and the reputation they already had established. Yeah. But if a record is bad, it's bad. And like the, you know, like, yeah, it's not going to and, and not only for the time, but like it has consistently to this day remained a, a beloved record in their catalog. So when it was released, it was number one in the UK. It was number one in the US. It was number one in West Germany. Bear in mind, this is when there was an East and a West Germany because of the Cold War. Uh, number one in West Germany. Number one uh, in the Australian Kent Music Report. Number one on the Finnish album charts. Number one in Sweden. So a lot of Scandinavian countries love this. Uh, number 14 in Norway. Kind of repeat, you know. Uh, number 18 in, in you know Canadian RPM top LPs. According to, to a 2018 article I read, it has sold 27 million copies. With the only other Beatles record that has more is Sgt. Pepper's. Sgt. Pepper's. With 32 yep. million. Um, at the time, in 1966 alone, it sold 1.2 million copies. Um, as that's of, crazy for 1966. Yeah, that's a lot. That's no a digital, lot of records. No digital, yeah. And, no, no, yeah. Yep. No digital, yeah, no that's, streaming, that's, that's all crazy. that kind of stuff. You can't buy it online. Yeah, people going out to the stores and, and you know, uh, buying this. So uh, as of September 2020... Rolling Stones rated Revolver as number 11 on the 500 greatest albums of all time. Of course, that list changes. In fact, when we did Sgt. Pepper's back in 2018 or 2019, yep. 2018? 2018, I think. Yeah, it was. Wow. Yeah. In 2018, I think it was number three and Sgt. Pepper's was number one, if I'm not mistaken. There were like three Beatles albums in the top 10. And then 2020 comes along and I'm sure they got some flack about being like, oh, it's like there's too many Beatles records in like the top 10 lists. Anyways, Whatever. There's too much music, blah, blah, blah. Whatever rolls. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I understand there's there's a lot of music out there. Anyways, um, but it's it's a number 11 now. I, I, I say this because that is higher than Sgt. Pepper when it wasn't beforehand. Again, beforehand, Sgt. Pepper was number one. This was number three. So it was behind that. Sgt. Pepper is 24, at least as of 2020. I think that's the most recent update of this huge long list of 500 greatest records. Yeah, for real. Um so this is higher than Sgt. Pepper. And I think throughout the last couple of years, um, in retrospect, people have really shown a light on Revolver and its excellence and kind of its, its well, the fact that it was so revolutionary for the time. It's getting a lot more recognition for that. And I really appreciate that because personally, it's my favorite Beatles record. Um, it also won the Grammy for Best Album Cover in 1967. Yeah, totally, totally deserves so, that. And that's something to talk about too, which is really interesting. Um, but so, I mean, so back then and now, it still has a reputation for being great, even though it was so experimental. Um, and you have bands that do that every now and then, of course. But I think just to the magnitude that the Beatles did it, um, the fact that they were already popular, that helped with it, of course. That, yep. that was a fact. But um, yeah, this is revolutionary. So what's revolutionary about it, right? So, okay, well, we've got Eleanor Rigby. Yep. Beforehand, you just didn't have a boys pop band having like a string quartet, like a fully classical influence, right? And mm -hmm. we talk about that in some of our previous records that a lot of early progressive rock is, and even modern, but a lot of the early bands, uh, they, they liked a lot of classical influences. Yeah. 
and they like liked orchestras being kind of incorporated into their music, right? We've got we did an episode on Days of Future Past, just like basically half a symphony and half modern. Yeah, music, uh, this, right? But this song doesn't even have a single Beatle playing but on no, it. It's literally no. just the voices. It is of all the, the strings, band. and it's just the voices. Yes, you didn't have that before, and you couldn't do that live, right? You couldn't have done that live. Um, and then you've got stuff like Love You Too, which is super Indian music influenced. As I mentioned earlier, it's almost like a chant, right? Um, again, I don't think many people really look to that as one of the greats on this album. No offense to George Harrison, um, compared to just some of the others. But um, then, then you've got. Um, Lyrical content, which I'll, I'll dive into later, but it's a lot more poignant, um, a lot more pastoral, rather than just, you know, love song here, love song there. Um, and uh, <laughs> you had a lot of interesting sound effects incorporated, and whether you love it or hate it, Yellow Submarine was kind of an interesting thing for a, a band that was, again, known for just kind of writing pop hits left and right. Um, and even for their contemporaries, which were kind of taking a more bold, aggressive approach to some of the R&B music from, you know, the American black community. Um, this was like, whoa, this is like a kid's song. That's yeah. weird for a <laughs> band to do when you're not, you know, publishing this for PBS or for some after school children's program. You know, like, uh, <laughs> it's weird yeah. that they're doing this. And you have like these inter- interesting sound effects in there, here and there. And again, whether you love it or hate it, some people think it's just really annoying and it gets stuck in their head and they hate it. Uh, Because it's cheesy. And some people actually like it. Uh, But, you know, the sounds of the submarine. You've got the the people in the background. um, Every one of us has all we need. Aha! You know, they're they're being really charismatic and jubilant. And not just kind of clean cut anymore. Like they were presented earlier with Brian Epstein kind of presenting them as, you know, to put you in the the, the suits. Clean cut boy band. clean, Clean shaven and you're charming and witty. And they were still charming and witty. But now it's like, oh, we can be kind of weird in our music, too, with something yeah. like this. Uh, with Yellow Submarine, where we're kind of shouting in the background. and um, You know, you've got references to drugs in your music. Uh, I'll mention some <laughs> of that later. You've got references <laughs> to drugs, yeah. uh, which you just didn't do. You just didn't do before. Uh-huh. Uh, so these were some of the things. And then I, am, of course, am saving kind of the best for last. The huge track that came off of this record that I think everyone looked to and still today do is tomorrow never knows the closing track. Yep. Uh, which uh, the weirdly it's the closing with. track. Yeah. It's, it's the closing track on the record, but it was the first one they recorded. Yes. Probably spent, right. I would imagine some of the most time on, uh, cause this is really the most experimental, but I've been talking for a long time. Destin, do you want to talk about kind of the, the significance of particularly that track and some sure. of the technologies they used to achieve such a bold innovation. Sure. Uh, I, I'll add in a one statement about um, the things that you just sort of didn't do at this moment in music. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them being, I think, and I, I mentioned this to you, I, I sent you a message about this and you, you responded back and you said, honestly, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, I don't think that there was a whole lot of protest rock songs that were happening mm, yeah. in the mid 60s for something like Taxman, which was kind of like a, a protester rock song uh, or, or bringing in sort of like politics into music or social justice into rock music at the time. Um, sure. I don't know. I haven't I haven't dug into that. I just don't I don't think it's popular or, or yeah. it was popular at the time. So, it, again, another thing uh, to mention uh, for things that just weren't done. But. Yes, yeah, sonically, 
There were a ton of, I think uh, one of the things we've been talking a, a lot about how this record influenced globally. Um, but this this record also influenced within the industry and within what records could sound like. And, and we're in 1966. This is very primitive music technology. Um, now, for the time, Abbey Road Studios was was state-of-the-art, state-of-the-art for 1966. I wanted to find quotes from uh, Jeff Emmerich, who was yeah. the guy who – he was the studio engineer, engineer – who worked with George Martin? Um, yeah, and uh, and I wanted to f I wanted to find as many things as I could find from him because he uh, did a lot of the weird <laughs> um, stuff for for Revolver. So specifically with Tomorrow Never Knows, which is you know this kind of psychedelic. <laughs> I call it psychedelic pseudo Indian. <laughs> like that's yeah, yeah that's yeah. like my yeah. label for it and uh, and I want to mention this because this to me absolutely blew my mind when I first read this but Jeff Emmerich was 19 years old doing this wow I wow. could not believe that the Beatles um, are pretty young themselves yes I mean not not 19 they were They're a little bit older I think they a were little bit older kind of mid 20s but I mean, um, could you imagine? Point, could still, you imagine 19, doing that, bro? Like yeah. 19 years old. And now here's That's the other insane. thing. Here's the other thing. This is what's crazy. This blew my mind. That very morning, when they came into the studio to start working on Revolver, he pro he got promoted to the recording assistant. That morning, at 19 years old, you're like you're gonna you're gonna work with. Here's the, the first thing you got: Revolver. Yeah, by you're, the Beatles. You're, doing, you're working now, with the Beatles. Even more specifically, the first song they worked on, "Tomorrow Never Knows." The first thing can, this can dude imagine, worked on. Could you imagine I mean, being in that, that situation? Obviously super intimidating, but oh my goodness, could you pick a more fun record to work on? I know, like imagine I you know. It's just a stand, like they could have like thrown him on a record of, you know, some some band that, I don't know, just did kind of boilerplate stuff. And then you've got one of the most experimental albums yep. of the time. In rock music. In rock yeah. music of all, right? Yep. I mean, but, but yep. especially for the time. How fun would that I know, be? Again, intimidating. I know. I'm you're like, dude, with like a really this you know, is crazy. Popular band, but so I'm, if there fun. if there are two moments, if there, are I don't know. I, I I have sometimes I look back and I just I I think to myself, it's like what moments of rock history, like in because you know I'm a studio nerd and I'm a mixing engineer, so like I love stuff like that and love looking at stuff like that, and I have like this list of moments that I would like to go to or would like to see in rock history yeah like moments that you I, had a time machine yes yeah. um the ed sullivan so the ed sullivan show is actually one of them um i, I would you i would get some earplugs bro i know i know and i would <laughs> love to have just witnessed not like see that but just sort of see the effect of it but that moment that day honestly of like a 19 year old who just got promoted walking in and then engaging with the beatles yeah. In, yeah, and the first song that we're going to work on is Tomorrow Never Knows. And they've yeah. been on a three-month break. And even – I mean think about just maybe where his mindset is at the time, right? He's a 19-year-old. He knows what the Beatles have done. Surely yeah. this guy knows – he knows what the Beatles have done. He knows what they've been recorded or been recording, yeah. right? And maybe, yeah, Rubber Soul. But no one saw where this was going. No. Except for no, them. No, no, no. So, I mean yeah. imagine you being in that state thinking it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go work with this boy band. Yeah, <laughs> and no. then you start working on Tomorrow Never Knows and you start working on yeah. all of these other songs like Taxman and, you know, here, there and everywhere. And then you have the string quartet of Eleanor Rigby. Like what is going on right now? What yeah. are we doing? 
what are we doing right now? And so, um, anyway, I just, I don't know. I like to go back and, and no, I think put that's, myself, yeah. put myself in the story, put myself in history, put yourself in history to see where this yeah. kid was at because he's a kid. This is a kid. Yeah. 19 um, years old. Yeah. So, uh, so here's this kid in 1966. Um, I, I have a quote from Jeff Emmerich and I'm going to tie in stuff with tomorrow never knows in just a second, but just kind of giving landscape here context. Um, 1966, he was, uh, he talks a little bit about the, how primitive state of the art equipment was in 1966 quote from him says this we'd lace tapes up on our tape machine and people would literally have to hold them out with pencils to hold the hold the Mm -hmm. tape and on tomorrow never knows there weren't enough people in the control room to handle holding them so we would go down into the maintenance department to grab people to help pull a couple guys pull a couple guys out so we can you know start using the board as an instrument because now you're putting tapes on this, yes. so I mean, this is this is primitive stuff. Um, but Sonic Innovations, this is where I can geek out on a lot of this stuff. Um, tomorrow never knows is revolutionary. Um, I, I I told you this prior to us recording on on the record here or on the episode that this album is it, it's it's revolutionary in terms of how it sounded in the 1960s. Now, and you you made this statement earlier for um we listen to this now and we're like oh yeah it kind of sounds like the 60s you know it just sounds like mm-hmm. sounds like the 60s i have in preparation for the episode here i've only been listening to 60s music 60s rock music uh for the past three days and just to get myself sort of back in the like what did what did stuff normally quote unquote normally sound like yeah. and um so one of the things that was done, and I, and I don't, I won't go into like every little thing that they did, but specifically on on Tomorrow Never Knows, one of the things is, out of all things, the kick drum, the kick yep. drum that was that was used, right? And you probably yeah. know about this because you know all the minutia. But uh, for anybody who doesn't know this, um, something that Jeff Emmerich did to Ringo's drum kit is that he took the front skin of the bass drum. And he would stuff a sweater. Now, the sweater, sweater that they put in there, you know what the sweater that they put in? Uh, you might know this a little bit more. Do you know the four-armed sweater that they had in one of the photos of the Beatles? Have you seen this I before? Do. Okay, I don't know if I've there, seen that. There was like this. You'll have to look it up. If you type it in on Google, you can be, just type in Beatles with the four-armed sweater. There's this big sweater that like all four of them could put on. I forget what it says. They took that sweater and stuffed it inside of the bass drum. Now, which is funny because everyone does this now. Not, not everybody, but like if you're in rock music, every single recording that I've participated in, a studio album recording, there has been something muffling the sound inside the bass drum. Every single one of them. Now, most of the music that I've ever recorded is rock music, but every single one of them had something, a pillow, a pillow, a blanket inside of the bass drum. This was not normal then, which again, it, it keeps everything from bouncing around, so it makes it sound more of a thud rather than a, a a note. So they took the front skin off. He stuffed a sweater inside it and then put the skin back on it. Again, something we do all the time nowadays. He moved the microphone four inches away from the drum. Four inches away. Now, contemporary Abbey Road wisdom at this moment was decreed that any mic placed closer than 18 inches from the bass drum would actually damage the microphone because of the air pressure. 1966, yeah. these are microphones then, right? But 
But in a quote, we were less interested in equipment than achieving new sounds. Is this is this not progressive rock? Come on. Like <laughs> all like all I could do is accommodate requests for new sounds for them was really basically abuse the equipment. Wow. Abuse Amazing. the equipment. That's a, that's a yeah. quote from Jeff Em. In order to get what they wanted, he had to abuse equipment. So that's what they did. They were less interested in breaking things and more interested in what can we do? Pushing the limits, yeah. pushing the envelope. I mean, this yeah. is that's so that's so progressive. That was something that was done on Tomorrow Never Knows. If you go back and listen to it, and I started doing this. I went back and as I was listening to 60s music, the hi-hat and the snare very prevalent usually in the mixes in the 1960s. The bass drum was not very prevalent at all in the 1960s. And this is listening to stuff like the Kinks and the Animals and uh, yeah. the Moody Blues, uh, some of their early stuff and all of that stuff that was going on. Um, even stuff uh, more of the R&B kind of thing, Otis Redding, stuff like yeah. this. Yeah. Um, bass drum, not very prevalent. But you go and yeah. listen to Tomorrow Never Knows, it sounds almost normal. Yeah, this is not. Yeah. This is, I mean, it sounds normal, but it was very revolutionary. Um, uh, some other things that happened as well that they that they did uh, got to get you into my life. You know, um, in fact, the horn section. Yeah, exactly. They have a horn section. A, a, a sax player. I got a quote from the sax player that was a, a part of this. Uh, he quotes this: "Paul sat at the piano and showed us what he wanted, and then we played with the rhythm track on our headphones." We tried it a few times to get the feel right. And then John Lennon, who was in the control room, suddenly rushed out, stuck his thumb out, and shouted, got it. However, yeah. Lennon's celebratory yell referred only to their performance. The sound that McCartney envisioned was still not quite there. He wanted something bigger. So Jeff pondered how he could achieve McCartney's vision. And what he said was, well, we could double track it, but... At this time, there were not any tracks left. So you're limited. Nowadays, we have digital. You could put 150 tracks in a session. Right. This, you had four. Yeah. And if you were going to, you know, so you, normally what you would do, and I apologize for people. I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence with recording music. But if you don't know, this, this essentially, if you had four tracks, essentially, you would try to record the bass and drums on the same one. One. That's one track. Then you would record some of the, mel the melody instruments, and then you have the vocals, and the last one right. would usually be done for percussion and overdubs if you wanted to do mm -hmm. that way, right? Now, if you wanted to re-record stuff on top of it and double-track certain things, that was harder to do because you'd have to find out which channel you want to put it on. So what they decided to do, and this is something that just wasn't done a whole lot, they recorded it onto a separate piece of stereo or, or a separate uh, stereo piece of tape. Now, in 1966... So they're, now they're using a totally different machine at this point to record this, which one cost goes that's that's a lot of money to be able to bring into entire systems in there. But this is the Beatles, so they have the you know they have the money to be able to do something like this. Mm -hmm. In 1966, though, there's no way to sync up two tape recorders. It's like, what are we doing right now? This is just something yeah. that wasn't done. So what they would do is they would mark on the piece of tape a starting point with a grease pencil. And right. then when it came to the final mix, they would essentially start up the copy, put them in at the same time, and then pray to God that the two would sound good together. Yeah. That's all you could have done. Dr. Robert contains an example of ADT, <laughs> yeah. or artificial double tracking, which was a new recording technique developed by an Abbey Road staffer named Ken Townshend. So what he did is that he freed up the band from having to record the vocals more than once. So when you hear doubling, 
you hear people doubling their vocal. Um, they'll record things twice, pan them to the left and the right, and you would get this big, thick sound. Think Devin Townsend um, did a lot of big double. Think of any rock guitar track nowadays. Their guitars are doubled. I guarantee it. Their guitars are doubled, and they're panned to the left and the right. But back in the day, they had to re literally record their vocals twice all the way through. They had to do the entire thing all the way through. What this did is that, which also takes two tracks to be able to do that because you have to use a track to be able to record the double. What this did is that it freed the band up from having to record the vocals more than once. What they did is that they copied the vocal track, played it alongside the original, but they would out of sync it with a matter of milliseconds, just yeah. enough to create Very this slightly. double image. We call well, and they it do that on double. Tomorrow Never Knows. They do well. it on Tomorrow and Tomorrow Never Knows. Yeah. Well, I think that that Lennon re referred to it as double flanging, if I'm not mistaken. Double flanging. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the things that they did on the again, this is what I love about how the vision meets the practical. Tomorrow Never Knows. John Lennon says, "I want to sound like the Dalai Lama." Yeah. Play that. Play the little excerpt from George Martin. Yeah. I'll play, play it here um, because this is a great example this of is, the vision meeting the practicality and this, them both being together to achieve it. Yeah, uh, this is this is from George Martin in, in 1993. So, yep. you know, a couple here decades later. Yeah, here, let's listen to it. For, for the first time now, we were dealing with tracks that were for the recording studio and not for anywhere else. One of the tracks on Revolver was a track called Tomorrow Never Knows, which was a weirdie and a great weirdie. The song itself was written by John Lennon, and the lyrics were largely taken from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was a kind of druggy Bible at the time. He said to me, I want my voice to be sound like a Dalai Lama singing from a hilltop. Um, this was another example of John wanting his voice to be something other than what it was. And I thought long and hard about this, uh, because we'd actually created the sound in a very mysterious way. We'd used tamburas, Indian influences again. Ringo banging out a really heavy Socceroo uh, line. John's voice, to complement it, had to be equally almost Eastern Indian in its effect. So how were we going to get his effect of the voice that he wanted? And we came up with the idea of putting his voice through a Leslie speaker, which is a rotating speaker, which we normally use for a Hammond. And that gave a kind of pulsing but distant effect. Jeff Emmerich, who was my engineer, um, loved it, and we all did. And, so, and John, John thought it was okay. But Jeff Emmerich actually said to me, you know, we could probably have done the same thing just as effectively by slinging Lennon from the roof on a rope and rotating him as he sings <laughs> because it's kind of rotating effect. We didn't try that one, though. <laughs> you know, yeah. I love that. I thought that was interesting. And one thing I wanted to, to note about this, this is slightly switching subjects just briefly. He mentioned in there, this was another example of John wanting to be his wanting his voice to be something other than what it was. Yes. Now reminded me of Stephen Wilson when we talked about Porcupine Tree, where mm. Stephen Wilson likes to layer a lot of effects on his voice because he's like, I, I know I'm not the world's greatest singer. There's a lot of other great uh, singers out there, and I I'm just really not one of them. Uh, so I like to just kind of experiment with different things that I can uh, do to, to, I don't know, make it more colorful or, or something like that. And that just reminded me of that, of, of him saying John wanting his voice to be something other than what it was. Yeah. So oh, it reminded great, me of another kind of prog rock icon, which is great point. Know, modern day Stephen Wilson. Yeah. It's a great point. The thing that I note when I think of this is that you have someone with a vision that exceeds 
what you think could be done. I think some people, you know, they think within the box. They think within, here's what we have, here's what we can do. But yeah. what John Lennon did is that he just had a vision. He said, I want to sound like this. Can you do that? Yeah. Which which involves a certain level of trust, but also, um, I mean, to be on the opposite end of that, to be able to go, can we execute that? Yeah. Yes. To also, to also be able to agree with the vision and then go, well, let's try that. Yeah, I don't know that. for sure, but let's kick around some yes. ideas. And and honestly, I know that's, that's a very simple and small little thing, which obviously they ended up, what the, you know, taking his voice and putting it through a Leslie speaker. It's something that I don't want to overlook is is the beauty in this of someone suggesting that I want something to sound like this. I think nowadays we hear music and it's like, I want to sound like them. Or mm-hmm. I want to sound like this person. Or I want to replicate that sound. And we can go on YouTube and we can find out what pedals they use. And we can legit just straight up be a copy, a carbon copy of what this person has and what they can do. Or it, it's so easy now. I think nowadays it's more about copying or finding like, oh, I like that tone and I want to do this. I don't hear a whole lot of people just walking around and just saying, yeah, I want to sound like the Dalai Lama on top of a hilltop. You know, like that that vagueness, but also the creativity combined with the practical knowledge and the futuristic looking of the studio is something that is so amazing. And yeah. just that one little instance of something, I know that was like a small little thing that they did in terms of the law. It's just one, it's one song with the vocal line that they did. But that that right there is the epitome of the George Martin and the studio with the vision of John Lennon and the Beatles and Paul, all of them coming together and producing something like this. It takes both of those two things. And that is kind of like my thesis statement for why the Beatles and Revolver is on episode 50 of this show is is coming kind of down to that moment. There you go. I would highly recommend just start digging into like, what did they do in the studio? Um, Because you'll find some really cool things, things that inventions and things that just did not exist. Um, Like the artificial double tracking. That was a recording technique developed by somebody at the recording studio that they were working at. It was never used before. Reversed guitars, never used before. I'm only sleeping. It's the very first recording of reversed guitars. Yeah. Stuff like this. Um, so it's not just the studio, but tape it's also they're playing tape loops. Yeah, um, if if you don't know what it, thinking of tape loop, you were asking me before, like uh, like what what the heck are we are we talking about? Think Money by Pink Floyd, taking yeah, yeah, yeah. the taking the sound bites, splicing the tape, cutting it and putting it together, and then sending it through the tape machine, and then it plays uh-huh. these sounds back to back to back, rather than being live in a room and playing, you know, king. Right. Yeah, know, yeah, rather than playing all of those you're not recording it you're taking individual recordings and splicing it now what we do is we take a mouse and we just click and drag and yeah. then pull it down um yeah very simple to use in, in a computer but that's what they were doing they were looping things they were reversing things they were sending things to different effects um they were using different drum techniques uh all kinds of stuff so uh definitely 
something that is uh, needs to be mentioned uh, for Revolver and how it advanced and progressed studio recording because things like that happened on this record are things that started to come out uh, with future bands th- that started do- using some of the same and similar techniques. People like Pink Floyd, The Who, uh, Velvet Underground, and so on started using these these types of techniques. So um, that was kind of my rant. So now let, we can have a conversation, I guess. You had your rant. I had mine. Oh, I don't of know. course. Does that work? Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So anyway, but we've kind of talked, I, I think we've kind of talked like globally and, and the influence and like what they did in the landscape. And we've also talked about the studio and like what they've done. I, I thought it was got. interesting to look at them from a lyrical perspective. Uh, yeah. At this point, just briefly, just kind of taking into account uh, where they were before this and stuff like Rubber Soul, where they were you know, on this record and then how they, you know, eventually progressed later on with Sergeant Peppers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, rubber soul. And this is kind of my, when I look at the lyrics, what, what I see, but, but which ones are romance songs and which ones aren't because at this point, most all of their catalog was about some type of romance or heartbreak or something within that. That could easily be, you know, you could draw a, you know, a line to that kind of theme or topic easily. And, evidently throughout most of the lyrics in a particular song um with rubber soul i would say 10 out of the 14 on there are romance or, or heartbreak it's like about you know 71.4 percent revolver this one we've got only four it's a drastic decrease out of the 14 mm. that's only you know before it was like 71 percent. now this is like 28.6 why wow. right? this is four out of 14 so they they you know and the ones that are kind of you know, lovey-dovey are like here, there, and everywhere. Good day, sunshine for no one. Though that one was much more poignant and thought-provoking than some of their other ones, but it's still kind of love and heartbreak. And then got to get you into my life. Though any diehard Beatles fans might contend got to get you into my life is actually about drugs. Uh, I think it was, but like, it, like at a first glance, first glance, it could seem song. like a love song. Yeah, it's a love song. Um, and I think it was meant to be masked as a love song, though the real inspiration was for pot. Um, you know, yep. Yep. Uh, I, I what's the, what's the, uh, what's the line? Another time where I could see it, I could find another kind of mind there or something. I was oh. talking about pot. Yep. Yep. Um, so anyways, I thought that was interesting. Um, and then Sergeant Peppers later on, only two out of the 13 songs are about romance or heartbreak. That's like when I'm 64, mm-hmm. which is, Still kind of a love song. And then Lovely Rita. She's like, taking a girl out, tried to win her, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Told her I'd really like to see her again. Interesting things, but they're still kind of within the realm of love and romance. But the rest aren't at all on that record. So um, I think that's interesting. They progress to this point where they're they're talking more about other things in life other than just romance and love. And like that's still something they're always going to sing about until, you know, until the end of their career. Yeah. You know. They just do it, particularly Paul. But here's the deal. Even with Paul, you, you're switching into Eleanor Rigby, right? Which is not about love. It's it's a it's a caricature. Yep. Um, and, and it's about lonely people overlooked in the world. It's a very sad song. Yes. Um, yeah, very true. morose. But it's not it's not about love. It's not about, you know, it talks about marriage in there, but that's not that's not the focal point of the song, right? So mm-hmm. and he's writing that, which is kind of different for him. Um, and then you've got John writing stuff like I'm only sleeping. Literally just talking about enjoying taking life easy and slow and that kind of deal and enjoying being in bed. And he did that a lot. 
uh, much yeah. to the irritation of uh, his other bandmates, particularly uh-huh. Paul. But, um, you know, Andrew Bird can sing, which is, I think, supposed to be, well, I've read that it's supposed to be uh, an insult towards Paul. It's a John song, and it's him kind of insulting him through the lyrics and that, but you could read about that later. Um, anyways, so lyrically, they're, they're evolving into just different things because they're, they're kind of, you know, through drugs and other life experiences, they're, they're finding different things that are important other than just this, that. And then of course, tomorrow never knows is really kind of that psychedelic trip. Uh, and, and speaking of psychedelic trip and everything, I think we should mention, um, proto prog. If you've never heard of what that is, we kind of mentioned some of the early progressive rock bands and kind of the movement or whatever, but some people, so, so there's a term called proto prog and right. I'll, I'll just read a couple of definitions. Um, from Prague archives, they say generally proto-Prague bands are the direct link between psych or psychedelic and Prague. And for that reason, the psychedelic components are present in the vast majority of them. But being that progressive rock was born from the blending of different genres, we have broadened the definition to cover any band that combines some elements of progressive rock with other genres prior to 1970. Um, and I think they kind of made that 1970 almost like that line of demarcation in a way that definitive line because a lot of people consider um around that time particularly stuff with uh like in the court of the crimson king which we mentioned on episode five a lot of people are like it's you know progressive rock if it's that and afterwards anything before that is not really prog rock that was like the first one depends on who you ask but um you know, some of these bands evolved and turned into 100 prog while others uh simply chose another path but the but their importance and contribution in the formative period of Prague can't be denied for that reason. No Prague site can ignore them. Rate Your Music lists Revolver as number 17 on their list of greatest proto-Prague records. Um, and number one is actually Pepper at the Gates of Dawn by Pink Floyd. Number two is Sgt. Peppers by the Beatles. Hmm. And number five is Days of Future Past by the Moody Blues. Hey, there you go. Mentioned. So um, anyways, the very short answer is it's an embryonic form of progressive rock yes that's uh, how i would say yeah it's like a transitional transitional form or something like that uh like it's it's before it started yeah it's yeah it's it's the egg before it hatched yeah right right took really took the air out of the tires on that one yeah i really Um, took the ocean out of the thimble (laughs) but you know i think uh one of the one of the the things that i saw that almost that parallel with this idea is actually proto-punk, which was going on in the mid-60s uh-huh. as well, uh, yeah. which was leading... And some people make the argument that like the Grateful Dead was was sort of proto-punk. But the, the, there are parallels here at the same time period before punk music and maybe progressive rock music was sort of getting their stride. Yeah, and that's what I was. I said. I, I kind of just... I, I had a brief little thing I wrote. I said, you know, whether or not you consider this prog rock or even proto-prog... It's clear that this album offers a sense of experimentation and elements that the progressive rock pioneers would soon embrace. Yes. Stuff yeah. like more philosophical lyrics, psychedelic, you know, lyrics, uh, new technologies, using the studio as an instrument, employing classical instruments, all that kind of stuff um, that really kind of set them apart um, in, in that world. So that was yeah. my whole. No, that's great. That. Yeah. The proto prog is that, I don't know. I mean, I know like we're, we're not married to labels. We've always said that, that, you know, we don't like putting, sort of the, the label on all of the things. And I know that we, you know, the name of the show is, is Prognotes, it's like progressive rock, but in the end, like. Well, and that, this was a new term for me. I'd never heard of this before. And so if you're curious about some other bands that they include, at least some places, 
some websites will say that the Beach Boys, the Doors, the Pretty Things, the Zombies, the Birds, the Grateful Dead, and Pink Floyd are also kind of in that category of category, prog. I mean, yeah. Super early bands yep. before they either became prog or that heavily influenced a lot of prog pioneers. I, I wonder, though, if if the Beatles continued their career into into more of the, the mid-70s. I had no idea what, what, what it would have been like. Right. But I wonder, I wonder if they would have been considered progressive rock for like a lot of their later, their later works. I don't, I don't know. Kind of like how, you know, when they broke up, they all kind of went their own way. Yeah. They all kind of did their own thing. They all had their own very successful solo careers, but none of those solo careers, I don't think was really progressive rock. It was really progressive. No, not this way. I'm not, I'm not saying that there weren't innovations with some of their music, especially with Paul. He loved to experiment and do weird stuff with tapes and sound effects too, still every now and then. And, all that, but um, you know, and they all kind of did fun stuff with their music and employed different stuff. But it, I don't know. Yeah, this oh, record in particular for its time was just more, you know, was bolder. I think. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I have something. Uh, kind of jumping back to the lyric, the lyrical content. I was reading some of the lyrics, mostly all of them, honestly, uh, on Revolver. Um, what am I doing? I have a note here. Let me look at this. Prevalent themes. Okay, prevalent themes of life and death on this album. Which uh, the one? Quote, Rubber Soul? No, Revolver, sorry. Revolver, okay. Yes. Advice to those who die in Taxman, that, that lyric. Advice to those who die in Taxman. Uh, yep. the, fatal, the fatal existence of Eleanor Rigby, as, as you've mentioned. Right, yeah. Um, knowing what it's, what it's like to be dead. And she yeah, said, yeah. she said, she said, yeah. she said, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the death, death of relationships and, and your bird can sing and for no one for that and matter. For no one. Yeah. That's yep. the one that comes to mind for that. Yeah. Uh, love you too. George Harrison, of course, this is kind of his song, uh, wishes to be loved before he's a quote, dead old man because lifetime is so short. Yeah. And yeah. this, but, but then you have this side of things, which is the desire to take advantage of life. And which is kind of reflected in the yellow submarine, you know, the, the kind of the joyous uh, nature yeah, of, of yellow submarine. Yeah, of yellow submarine, and got to get you into my life. Yeah, sort of that that joyous nature to it. Um, but the but this is this is what I was kind of like reaching is the ending of this, the absorption with death on this record almost is resolved in the final track being tomorrow never knows which is when john lennon saying it is not dying yeah that's interesting I yeah thought that was really it cool is not yeah. yeah so i, I love how there there's a lot i mean a lot but i love the way that it ends with that lyric like it is not dying it sort of ends yeah. on the that, that that note um but uh i as i was looking through those i was just i was writing down like some of these buzz buzzwords honestly of sort of the life death human existence and experience and stuff and uh it was very interesting how i saw a lot of the overarching themes across the lyrics of this album um so uh, moving away from maybe some of the romance into a little bit more kind of like philosophical thoughts on life yeah yeah you know uh much deeper top yeah 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 broader broader perspective and all that so I thought that was I thought that was interesting, and again, something that was just that's separating. I feel like a lot of the time, I feel like we're just making a ton of arguments for how they're 
how they've separated themselves or how they were how they were separating themselves from things that they did and right. how they were moving forward. Shoot, Don Draper, you got to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um anyway. I have I have something else that actually kind of goes back into the the studio stuff. I, I I wrote down this note, but I wanted to to state it. Is that okay with you? That's okay with me. It's episode fifty. I'm going to do whatever the heck I want. Do it. I think, like most elements of of Revolver, um, the harmonic material. I'm talking about this for a second is based on a combination. I'm not going to say it's it's purely. It's it's a combination of traditional but also experimental practice. Uh. Now, I also should mention that the band is not formally trained in music theory, um, but uh, they put some pretty complex chord progressions um, that were differentiating differentiating themselves from other contemporaries at the time who were using sort of the diatonic chords of one, four, and five, essentially, for the most part. Yeah, I was. I, I specifically looked at this. I saw somebody who was making a comment about. Uh, the the structure of here, there, and everywhere. I was actually kind of blown away by this. I'm taking this from some, somewhere that I found it. Here, there, and everywhere uses 10 chords across two different keys with modulations reflecting the mood of the song. Which I thought that was, like, that's wow. pretty awesome. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. At the line of changes my life, the harmony goes down to a previously unheard chord of seven, the seventh chord, marking the change in musical terms. And then at the bridge of the song, it changes key completely with the line, I want her everywhere, echoing the poignancy of the lyrics. And innovations such as this, right? Our harmonic quality of, of music uh, getting into kind of the nitty gritty of how things were legitimately written. Um, right. I think just like elevated progressions of rock and roll at, at the time to a more elaborate art form reminiscent of classical music, which is also very reminiscent in progressive rock music in yeah. into the seventies and onward again. I feel like I'm just constantly making arguments for why this is progressive rock and how this is so progressive, but I was going to, I was going to ask you just sort of like personal comments on this record as a whole. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I listened to all of the Beatles discography. I like the early boy band stuff to the more experimental kind of tr- you know, transitory phase to, you know, all the way out to magical mystery tour. I love magical mystery tour. Super yeah. out there. Really weird. Uh, you ever listen to flying uh-huh. blue Jay way? Uh-huh. Check that out. That's oh yeah, stuff. man. I love it. Anyways, uh, so I mean, I love all of it, but Revolver is my favorite. Revolver is my favorite because I think it's this great pivotal moment where you still kind of have some of their their harmonies. And I mean, what we just listened to here, there, and everywhere is very soft and almost has kind of a yesterday-ish quality. Yeah. Um, it's this kind of soft little ballad here, and it's pretty short. Uh, it's a fun fact. Uh, I read that McCartney actually wrote this while he was waiting for John Lennon to get out of bed. Um, so really funny is there's he, Lennon wrote I'm only sleeping on this record uh, anyways but uh, yeah no this this record is just uh, you know Tomorrow Never Knows is definitely the draw for me it's one of my all time if not the favorite song for me of the Beatles um, I love Tomorrow Never Knows but I also love I'm Only Sleeping those are kind of neck and neck um, 
yeah, there's just, there's a lot of stuff. That, I mean, their voices are gorgeous. I think they always have been. And so I think that's an element that, you know, is really great too. Yeah. Uh, about this, that they just have really fantastic voices, I think. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I love, she said, she said, um, you know, I love Andrew Bird can sing. That's a great guitar lick, by the way. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's really cool. Love that's that. an awesome riff. Also, amazing riff. the guitar solo on Taxman. Yeah, because Paul, because Paul was the one who did the the solo. Uh huh. Yeah. On and that so, but, song. Yeah, exactly. But and I just love how like gritty and just yeah. sort of off the. It's just not by the book. No, it's you know, not. Yeah. yeah, and stuff like really that. Bizarre. It's really cool. You know, yeah. honestly, I, I was looking at this because I know that I, I, I figured that you were probably going to say that "Tomorrow Never Knows" was your favorite song on this album. That was my guess, um, because it's it's also well, it's also first one, one that of mine. To well. mind is actually "I'm Only Sleeping." That's the first one that comes to mind. Knows is, yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind. But "Tomorrow Never Knows," I always think of that too, and it's like neck and neck, so it's hard for me to choose between the two. But I I love both of them. So mine, and and I actually didn't even realize this until I actually revisited this album as we were preparing for the episode. Because I was like, obviously, Tomorrow Never Knows is always the one that stands out. It's always the one that's like, whoa. And, yeah. and, you, and you continually listen to it, and it's like, this is so freaking good. Everything from the drums oh, to the, drums the so sounds that are created, and then just sort of the, just encapsulates. I and mean, it's just so incredible. Um and I think I love it from the perspective of me being a prog rock fan. But I think from the songwriting, like strictly a song, I think for no one is probably my my next favorite. On, yeah, I get on that. This record. That's, a, that's an amazing track. Yeah. It's great. Um, the bass lines are great, honestly. Yeah. The bass line on freaking Taxman. Well, bass line's phenomenal, but also uh, the drums. I know we talked about how it was engineered, Dude, but the actual yeah. playing of the drums. Ringo's performance on this record is terrific. Now, I know everyone kind of rips on Ringo. A lot of people do. They're just kind of like, oh, he was kind of the least talented one. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying everyone thinks this, but I, I've heard some people be like, oh, they kind of make pot shots at him. And, uh-huh. oh, you know, he wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles, blah, blah, blah. Like John Lennon said that apparently. People like look at that. No, Ringo, Ringo's a, a solid drummer. He really is. And 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 look at Revolver. Seriously, look at Revolver. Yeah. Um, he, he There's really some great performances. Are they that crazy complicated, like stuff like Rush or Dream Theater or some of the other groups we covered? No, they're not crazy, crazy complicated. But he does have a lot of emotion and feel, and it just it works. It blends really well with the rest of the instruments. And in fact, what Ringo said about his drumming on Revolver was, I've never played like that before, and, ever, and I've never played like that since. But it was just how it happened. So even, you know, wow. good old Richard Starkey considers it one of his best. Hey, you know. You know. Yeah. Earlier today, I was like, I think we've earned the right to be able to talk about this record because the only members of the band that are still alive is the rhythm section. Yeah. And you and I are the rhythm section. Yeah. So we um, should talk about it. You being the bass player and I being the drummer. So um, yeah. I think we've earned the right to talk sure. about this. <laughs> it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> No, I, I get it. And that's all that matters, I, Justin. I, I get it. This is episode 50. I'm going to do whatever we want. That's all that matters. Um, yeah. That's pretty great. Well, uh, we, we did want to go. Do you have anything else before we hit our kind of our last segment and then we'll, then we'll close out? Sure. We've been going a while. We've been going a while. Oh, I know we've gone a little bit over, but it's episode 50. We'll do whatever we want. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, that's just going to keep coming back, isn't it? So, all right. Well, let's jump into our last segment before we close off or close out episode 50. This is another segment of Get Busy With The Facts. Okay, so even when we're not doing Rush or talking about Rush, we're still playing Rush. Absolutely. It's just a problem that we have that we're willing to accept the fact that we have a problem. Um, and that's the first step to getting healing is mm. accepting the fact that you have a problem. I don't need to be healed. I, I'm, I'm okay with, with, with Rush being with- constantly <laughs> on my mind. All right, so uh, I, I just have like – I have a few. For those who don't know, what the, I mean, get busy with the facts is, is just – a fun fact section. And and there like Drew probably has a thousand of these things because you have you just know more of the fun facts and like I said, the minutiae of the Beatles and such. I have a few and I figure we could probably just alternate and just go back and forth with okay. some fun facts. We could just fire off some fun facts. Okay. So you want me to go first? You want me to go first? You go first. You uh, I'll go first. Uh, yeah. Well, we've got that excerpt. So this is the Lennon-McCartney rivalry. This is where you really start to see the cracks. Yes, where yes, yes. start separation between John and Paul as a creative force. And you can tell they, they start to write more songs on their own to prove kind of like who's the better songwriter in a way. It gets much more competitive. Uh, I'll just read something. I, I read in Esquire, which I thought was interesting. There's, there's an article on it. I think that Paul is extremely mindful that John has just contributed a superb batch of songs to Robert Soul, says Rodriguez of the ever competitive McCartney. So Paul digs deeper, coming up with Here, There, and Everywhere for No One, Eleanor Rigby. These are not typical Paul McCartney songs. They're social commentary. They're very stark, a non-sentimental breakdown of a romantic relationship songs. That's a well that he would never draw from much again. Even John had praise for them. It's Paul at the top of his game. So Paul is mm. wanting to be much more artistic like John, who's discovering new philosophies and experiences. And John's a little territorial in his reaction, and he wants to be the artistic and more evolved one, I think. And in Andrew Bird can sing, John might be kind of insulting, uh, you know, stimming, insulting Paul, which you know, stems from John's own jealousy and insecurity. Uh, so they were trying to kind of one-up each other, who was better. Um, I have a small thing to read from A Hard Day's Right. I highly suggest anyone who's a Beatle fan to check it out because it goes through every single song and gives fun facts on it and how it was written and some of the stuff about it. But one nice. of them, Andrew Burke and Sing, uh, I thought this was this was really interesting. The song about someone who doesn't get John, right? who doesn't understand him, someone who does all the things that hit people do but isn't hit by nature. This was a gripe that he often made about Paul. The line, you say you've seen Seven Wonders, could therefore be a reference to the first time the Beatles smoked pot in New York when Paul thought he had discovered the answer to all of life's big questions and wrote his insight on a piece of paper. And when he read it the next morning, all it said was, there are seven levels. So the whole kind of, you say you've seen Seven Wonders... It's him digging at Paul being like, yeah, you think that you understand everything. Just you think you're so cool and evolved, but you're not, you know, Um, the, uh, what did he say? I thought this was, yeah. In April of 1966, Paul was in print enthusing about the different forms of music he was getting into Indian, classical, electronic, and bemoaning the fact that there simply wasn't time to listen to everything he wanted to. The only thing to do is to listen to everything and then make your mind up about it. Could talk like this have led John to write, Tell me what. Uh, tell me that you've heard every sound there is. So, anyways, I thought that was interesting uh, kind of perspective on that. But on that, I also had an excerpt, another excerpt from George Martin from that same interview, him talking about kind of the competition between John and Paul, and I thought we would uh, play it on the show. 
Let's do it. By the time we came to record the album Revolver, John and Paul were going their kind, kind of their own ways in songwriting. I mean, they're always, always they were individual songwriters, but in the early days they did use to collaborate much more than they later did, and their collaboration was becoming a rivalry rather than a collaboration. It was still very friendly, Marky. I mean, they, they loved each other very much, but it was a kind of competition rather than uh, a real collaboration. A lot of people used to think, well, which one of you writes the words? You know, they're thinking of Gilbert and Sullivan or, or Rogers and Hart or whatever. But, of course, they were complete songwriters in their own right. They always, by this time, sang their own songs. They would then coerce the others to work with them, to surround them with a good sound. This sort of pattern of the two of them writing their own songs in their own individual way was becoming much more evident during Revolver. And, of course, the next album showed the real fruits of that. I thought that was, it's always interesting to hear from someone who was actually there, was able to kind of witness. Oh, totally. The interaction between these two magnificent songwriters. So, uh, yeah. So anyways, that was a a fun fact. Well, maybe not fun. Uh, That's not really fun. No. Creative force separating. I shouldn't have put that here. I'm sorry. What in the world are you doing? It's get busy with the facts. It's not have fun with the facts. It's true. And it's episode 50. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, it's true. Um, okay, you ready for my point? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, go. all right, all right, go all right. Here, here we go, here we go. Uh, fun fact this was the last altered album by the label for the American market. Oh, yes, I did know that. Yep, yes, I saw it. So, yep. up, in, up until this point in the career of the Beatles, Capitol Records always altered their album, they would alter the track listing. Here's what's included I think the American release didn't even have I'm Only Sleeping on it. Yeah, I don't know the exact track list, but. Well, some of the tracks on Revolver appeared on Yesterday and Today. I think Andrew Bird Can Sing was one of them. And I Um, know for a fact that I'm Only Sleeping was on there, or that that wasn't on the American release. So this was the last album because they kind of made a stand and said that we're not doing this anymore, which is why you see a ton of records that are compilations of the Beatles. That's because they would take songs and put them on blah, 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 blah. Um, Which I also think uh, for some of the B-sides that came from this record, uh rain being one of them right and uh paperback writer i think was during this rain and paperback writer were a couple months beforehand it was a single yes Uh, it was it was a single so there was an a side and a b side a side i believe was paperback writer and b side was rain Rain, and again this is a perfect reflection of the fact that they were turning to different types of sounds and music because those are both also very experimental and you can tell they came out around the same period of time like when you listen to those two um, th- they're they're extremely they're different. They're very very different from the stuff they, they have been writing before on Rubber Soul. They're excellent songs. Definitely, I, I love those songs. I wish that Revolver had Paperback Writer on it. I wish it had Rain on. I wish it had both Honestly, of those I wish on it had both. If it had both of those on there, I mean, Revolver is also excellent. But like it. It, it fits with the rest of the record. Like it easily, you could have put both of those on there easily and been like, oh yeah, this was definitely written around the same time. Well, it's funny you mentioned the whole, the separation of the American tracks versus the US. I'll tell you, I was at a job interview and this is when I was really into the Beatles. This is er, like, high, this is high school. This is sophomore year. I must've been 14 or 15. And I was such a little know-it-all. Um, but I was right though. Um, I'm just saying. I that's right, see, that's right. the problem. My interviewer, <laughs> My interviewer was so I had a rubber soul shirt on. I actually had a, 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 it was my goal to get 
a shirt with every single Beatles album, like a, a shirt for every single Beatles. Every album. Beatles he just album. had the album yes. on the shirt because I had a couple of them. I had Magical Mystery Tour. I had Rubber I Soul. I had I had Rubber Soul. I wore that one a lot. I had Let It Be. Anyways, there were a lot of them. But I remember the Let um, It Be shirt. I was wearing Rubber Soul, and you know, especially with like younger generations, this this guy that I was interviewing and. I <laughs> the general manager was talking with me, but then the owner comes in and they, they, you know, I'm this little kid trying to, it's a fast food joint. It was a Sonic drive. Oh, it was the Sonic job. Okay. Yeah, okay, I had okay. that for was, a summer. Yeah. yeah, yeah for a yeah. couple months. Yep. 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 I yeah. remember. I remember. That's so how long I'm, we've I'm known each other. Interviewed. It was my first, it was my first job really, to be honest. It was my first job. It was my first interview. And I'm this little kid. I'm a little nervous, right? I need some summer money, blah, blah, blah. Well, I get through the general manager interview. And then the owner comes out of like the, the building and like, you know, the general manager's boss, this is the real guy. Uh, and he comes out and he sees I'm wearing the rubber sole shirt and he's just like, ah, uh, I bet you don't know like the first song that was on that record. Dude. He assumed cause I'm young that I, I like, this was my dad's shirt or something. I didn't really know what I was talking about. Uh-huh. Little did he know that I was heavily invested in the Beatles at that point. I was listening to their entire discography all the time. And I said, drive my car. And he said, nope. And I forget what he said the other one was. I am I have to look up the, ca- he, he put no. the Capitol Records one. And I straight up said, I, 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 was, I tried not to be a jerk about it. I was like, yeah, that's the American release. That's the Capitol Records one. I'm referring to the one that was released in the UK originally. And the original track listing, <laughs> the first song is no. drive my car. I don't know what his reaction was after that. I'm sure he just kind of passed it off as, oh, this kid doesn't actually know because he wasn't alive when this came out. And I was like, I may not have been, but I'm still historically right. So I'm just saying a separate instance. Do you remember? I won't name names. The person that we were really excited to show our first record to that was in the music industry for a long time. Yes. I'm talking about. It was really funny because he gave us like high praise. He was like, hey, I really liked it. And we were like, oh, this guy could be a connection. So, you know, like we're going to get big, blah, blah, blah. You know, We, we, we were really anticipating his reaction to this. And somehow along the conversation, we got to the wall and he was just like, yeah, 1982. And I should have just let it slip by. I was like, yeah, 1979. He was like, no, 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 no. It was 1982. I was like, oh, you're thinking of the movie. The movie yep, came the out movie later. The movie came out in 1982. 1982. The album the was record, 1979. The original, yeah, the original record was 1979. And that's when it had all the hits and hit the airwaves and everything. The movie was 82. Yeah. <laughs> I was and now here we are hosting all. a podcast. Um, yeah. Yep. And anyway, uh, get busy. Uh, you got another fact. You got another get busy with the facts. What else you got? What else you got? Uh, apparently, there was a debate about how much John Lennon contributed to the writing of Eleanor Rigby, which I did not know. Yes, I, I, I heard about really that. He says, this is what I read somewhere in a magazine, Goldmine Mag, said, uh, the first verse was his and the rest are basically mine, which was disputed by McCartney. So this is what John was saying. First yep. was his and the rest are mine. McCartney says that. Um, I saw somewhere that he says he helped on Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, about half a line. That's what McCartney says to John. So, yeah, anyways, they're both debating who had it. But uh, he said, but Lennon's influence was certainly evident. Meeting John has made Paul try for deeper lyrics. George Martin said um, in Hunter Davies' The Beatles. But for meeting John, uh, sorry, but for meeting John, I doubt if Paul could have written Eleanor Rigby. You can detect his influence in the line, wearing the face that she keeps in the jar by the door which has a surrealism that's somewhat ominous. Perhaps Lennon's summary of his assistance is most apt when he said of the song, Paul's baby, and I helped with the education of the child. Wow. Um, all right, here's here's one. 
Revolver was not always going to be named Revolver, as you probably yeah, as you I've probably know. Yep. You know this one. Um, I, I decided to write this down mainly because it just made me Dude. laugh. Like out it's of funny. all the ones, I was like, "This is hilarious." So, uh, Revolver had a couple of different names before it was Revolver. One of them was after Geography, Ringo's yep. suggestion, um, which was a pun. Yep, uh, and it also off uh, of the, I think the, it was Stones. Stones album was, that. Uh, oh, hold on. I think it was the Stones. I think it was. I, I think it was the Stones that was kind of like You're a reference right. to. Yeah. To me. Okay, I'm going to continue reading. Uh, after Geography was one of them. Four Sides of the Circle. Yes, it's Stones. Sorry. Stones, yep, yep. Four Sides of the Circle. Beatles on Safari. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, these are funny. This is my favorite one. Fat Man and Bobby and Abracadabra. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But then, but then, why, why, uh, why Revolver? Uh, and this was the... They asked themselves, what does a record do? It revolves. That's some unoriginal ratchet shit right there. Yeah. It's the simplest thing. It's the simplest thing possible. It's with the, the with thing. the most like out there artwork. Simple name, but just Yeah. Yeah. Out there. So anyway, that's another fun fact for for Revolver. Well, the artwork was done by uh Klaus Vorman, who would later become the bassist for Manfred Mann. I did not um, know that. So he was he was a yeah, he was a fellow musician. Um so I, I thought that was that was really interesting. In fact, he actually might have been what was the other thing I wrote? Oh man, I didn't put him here, but I read somewhere else. He like they all kind of knew each other. Yeah, he somehow yeah, he was knew a friend of the band. Yeah. which was the original bassist for the Beatles before they were the Beatles when they were the Quarrymen. Um but uh and then the Silver Beatles later. But anyways, Stuart Sutcliffe was their first super first basis and Paul was playing guitar and then Paul transferred to bass, blah, blah, blah. Anyways. Um, but yeah, this, this guy knew, I think Stuart Sutcliffe, which was really interesting. And then he was a friend of the band and he would later go on to be the bassist for man for man, another popular rock group in the sixties. So anyways, uh, how about that? Yeah. It's a really interesting thing. I also just wanted to say, I think before this, this was the first record that the Beatles did that wasn't a photograph. So, you know, everything Ooh. beforehand, they, they were taking photos. And to be honest, by and large, that's what you did in just like popular music anyways, in Western music anyways. The album cover was almost always a photo of someone, right? I mean, you're thinking of like almost any artist you're thinking of, right? Whether it be Elvis Presley or whether it be Roy Orbison or whether it be Frank Sinatra when you're doing big band stuff. Like in almost every genre, it was just, so who's the artist? Who's the draw? They're the talent. You just take a picture of them and that's it. And while this does still have their faces on it, it's a drawing and it's kind of a like an impressionistic perspective. It's an artist yeah. trying to do their best to capture them, but still kind of make it more colorful. And it's just a sketch. Um, and then you have this weird collage of all these different, yes, photographs, but they're clearly candid shots of them in really different and bizarre scenarios. Not like they're posing for the cover of something sure. like yeah. they had been for the rest of their, or previously on almost all the records. In fact, yeah, all of them, they were just posing in some way, sometimes in different locations or whatever. But I mean, even Hard Day's Night, which is a bit more artistic, it's still just a, a reel of photographs, right? Yep. Um, and they're, they're kind of posing for them, right? Um, with these, you have kind of these cutout photographs and it's just like a, 
it's like they cut some out of a magazine and just pasted them on there. In addition to these different sketches, it's really kind of bizarre. Uh, huh. Again, it kind of plays along with this whole kind of idea that they were becoming more artistic, not just in their music, but also on the album cover. And I was about to say, I would say, yeah, it's great. This, point. this is this is where I would say this is album artwork and not an album cover. The delineation between the two. That's good. An album cover had been done previously. This was one of the first album artworks, quote unquote. That's good. You know, and, I, I when I'm uh, when I go shopping or record shopping, when you go to like a used record store and you start flipping through records and stuff like that, you know, you, you try to speed up the process because you can't look at every single one of these things. Yeah. And I, I will be completely honest. If I see a photo of a person on the record, I will subconsciously just skip past it with things that yeah. I know I like. I'm no, like, most sure. of the things that and I that's... like have album artwork. Well, and right? that's, that's, and, that's yeah. one thing that's about prog rock. Um, yeah. You know, totally. the, the album artwork because prog rock groups like to stimulate the imagination with with the album cover, right? And they they like imaginative stories set in sci-fi or fantasy motifs yep, and, yep, or yep. settings. So usually the album artwork is is drawn or has some kind of graphic element that that couldn't really be replicated with a photo, or if it is, it's manipulated in a really weird way. So it's to again kind of stimulate the imagination more so than just like what you see is what you get. This yep. is the band. That's it. Or the artist. And with prog rock, they were like, no, we want to explore these different stories and these worlds and, you know, very nerdy and, um, but imaginative too and explorative. So anyways, uh, pretty great. yeah, it's great fun. This fact. Is another reason that this is a notable record and again, progressive rock. Yeah, that's great. All right. I got one more. I got one more okay. fun fact. Do you have any more? Uh, I, I've got plenty, but we can cut it short. Got plenty. <laughs> We're running a little bit over anyway, but it doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. It's I'll, I'll say one more after this, and then we'll be done. Okay, here we go. This is this is my favorite. I say best for last because, and I hope I hope you don't know this. I hope you don't know this because I was like I was trying to find something. And I was like he probably knows all this crap. So I would start. I dig. I dug deep, Drew. I dug okay. deep. I was okay. I was on the internet scouring for yep. hours. I'm kidding. Yep. It was more like it was more like 45 minutes mm. digging. For something that would surprise Drew Brown on this podcast Alrighty. for episode 50. All right, you ready for this? Okay. You ready, yeah. listeners? Oof. What is it, SpongeBob? You ready, kids? Ready? <laughs> aye, aye, Captain. Aye, aye, here we go. All right, all right, all right. Mad Men, season five, episode eight. Yes. They play Tomorrow Never Knows, Tomorrow Never Knows at the end of that episode. You and I yes. are both big Mad Men fans. I think we actually yes. made a reference to it the other the other episode, like last episode or something. Um, either well, way. you made a no, reference we were talking to this about episode. The, no, no, no. I'm talking about Move the forward. The, no, no, no. We were talking about the whiskey a go go. Remember that? We were talking about yes. that on the last episode, yes. I think, or something. Like yes. That. Anyway, uh, so we're big Mad Men fans. Now, the creator of Mad Men, Matt Weiner, mm-hmm. insisted that they would use the original master recording. Of okay. Tomorrow Never Knows on the episode. Okay. All right. You want to know how much that costs? No, I don't know this, but it's a it's probably an astronomical figure. Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Jeez. To use Tomorrow Never Knows at the Gosh. ending of that episode. Yeah. One, one song, one episode. But it is the whole. I think it is the whole song or close to it. No, it it's is, close to it. It's not the yeah. whole song, but almost all of it. It he is. Gets to, it's a. It's a very, big montage yeah. that's like a minute and a half to two minutes, maybe more, and it's close to the end. And then he turns the record off. Yep. Picks up the needle. But picks up yeah. the needle and shuts it off. 
that right there. You can go and look. I mean, you can find just that portion of the of that like the montage on YouTube. I did not know that. That I was like, this is probably the it's best. More of a madman fact. This is saying. more of a madman fact, but I'm just saying. You, this is what but I was yes. saying. You want to know how much? The figure. You want to know how much Tomorrow Never Knows is worth? Two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars to play it. To play it. Yeah. Play it on. On a big on TV show, show, I guess. Anyway, that is my that is my initial fun fact. I dug deep for that, Drew. Are you impressed? I am impressed, especially because it pertains to Mad Men, and I love Mad Men. Exactly. Two things. Oh, there you it's go. two birds, one yep. stone. And so one now stone. one can sing. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, my last one is, Here is we pretty go. brief. A lot of this album is drug-induced, and you can tell. You know, I mentioned got to I'm drug-induced. And, you know, I'm, to- I'm drunk right now. Uh, alcohol is still a drug, people. All right, wake up. Gosh, wake up, Liz. The Liz better wake up. <laughs> Anyways, so it's a drug induced, and when you when you see and hear it now, you can totally tell. But that was not the case back in the day. From a, a, another magazine article I wrote, I, I read. I didn't. <laughs> it's the end of the I episode. I wrote all of this. It's the end of the episode. I'm talking. It gets hot here in, in Los it, it Angeles. Does. It does. I've been through a pretty brutal heat wave. I wrote, and there's there's only a, a slight amount of relief. It's still pretty bad. It's All pretty right. Bad. One of the things about, this is what the the writer said. One of the things about their use of LSD and indeed marijuana as well is that nobody knew they were taking drugs. So this album was received through the filter of innocence by its listener. One must keep in mind that the knowledge we have now, which colors the way we listen to Revolver, was not present at the time it was released. Which I think was pretty interesting because now we're like, oh my gosh, that's so trippy, that's so druggy or whatever. And when it's released, it's like, I'm sure some people picked up on it, but like not everyone did, which is really interesting hmm. because of how experimental it is. Like how could, I, I don't I think of it now and I'm like, how could you not? Like this is so different from what they were doing before. And a lot of it is, and maybe it's because people just didn't, like other than people who took drugs, people who didn't take drugs really didn't know the sounds of psychedelia. Yet, yeah. There was no baseline. Pink Floyd really kind of like, yeah, yeah there's no baseline. There's no baseline. Until Pink Floyd that. and bands of the like just kind of really exploded and all that kind of stuff. But I think that's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, she said, she said, she said that came out of a, an LSD experience that the Beatles were all at, except McCartney. It was at a, a party in Los Angeles, actually. It was in Los Angeles. Um, and, uh, Ringo, George, and John were there, and Peter Fonda, the actor, was kind of like acting as the guide as they were taking this hallucinogenic drug or they were going on a trip. Uh, and John did not like what he was saying. He was saying stuff like, I know what it's like to be dead because when I was a kid, I got shot and like three times or something, and I lost so much blood on the table that uh, I, I like my heart stopped, like, you nice. know, a, a, a bunch of times. And like, I was probably, and you know, John's on this trip and when you're on a trip, like lots of stuff freaks you out. So hearing this kind of talk led him to, to react with stuff like who put all that crap in your head, right? So similar to the lyric, who put all these things in your head, things that make me feel like I'm at, you're making, and he said to him, you're making me feel like I've never been born, right? These kind of weird things that you don't like that sound like nonsense. If you're not in, in that headspace, that exact headspace that John was in or whatever, but uh, anyways, I, I thought that was that was interesting. I, I am curious. I, I didn't find out. And, and maybe there's not really a good or interesting reason for this. Um, why she changed it to she said, she said, as you know, because the experience came from a guy from Peter Fonda. Right. So I've, at first it was at first it was he said, he said. And then before, you know, before they released it, he he finalized it with she said, she said. I don't know, maybe he just thought it was more interesting to have a perspective of a 
woman huh. kind of tripped out on it. But I, anyways. So that was the last fun fact. Okay. Last fun fact. That's great. Oh. Are, are we done? Let's say yes. Let's say because yes. I could keep going, and we've already we've already basically made this a two parter inadvertently. Yeah, yeah, but um, it's episode fifty. It's episode fifty. We can do we whatever can do what we, want. we want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but either way, let's just let's go ahead and close it down. I'm going to stop talking, and we're just going to go into our into our outro here. So thank you everybody for listening and sticking around. These are our prog notes for Revolver. Thank you guys again for listening, um, continually listening each and every episode that we release. It's been amazing. Fifty episodes. That's that's. That's crazy. That's I mean, I was freaking out when we were doing 10 or, or 20 or something like that. That's pretty nutty. So, but it, this is great. So um, if you enjoyed this episode, if maybe you learned something from the episode like I did, uh, please subscribe. You could follow us with the link tree in the description. Uh, there you can find our Discord community, social media, Patreon, if you'd like to support us monthly and what we do. Also, don't forget to follow the Spotlight Pod podcast feed right there uh, there will be another interview that's coming soon really great it's an offshoot podcast with different interviews of up and coming or long established prog rock bands it's, it's really great but before we close Drew last question for you before we close out this episode is what is the next record that we are checking out for episode 51 it is it is Metropolis Part 2 Scenes from a Memory by Dream Theater Buckle up. Here we go. So join us next time as we discover the past, present, and future of Prog Rock. See you guys on Discord. Thanks. Uh-huh.